Man, we like to bury ourselves in God's Word here at Substance. Uh, That's the big aim, is to open the Bible every week, to dive into a text of Scripture so that we're hearing what God says, not what the guy with the denim jacket up front is trying to say. Um, My wife made yesterday this amazing dessert that I'm not supposed to be having right now. So this is what we're talking. We're talking biscuits. We're talking whipped cream, blueberries. What was the other thing? Lemon curd. And so what I essentially did um, is I put on some sweats, and um, I buried myself in this dessert. And I just, every bite, I just couldn't wait for the next bite. That's what we want God's Word to become to us. That's how we want it to be formed uh, in us, because these very words are breathed out by God, and they are good for us, for all things, for our training uh, in righteousness. So uh, the question we started asking last week through our series, The Attributes of God, is this, what is God uh, like? That's the question we're asking as we are attempting to learn a little bit more about what the attributes, or another word for that is the character of God. And we decided to go through the Psalms to learn about this. And the reason for that is because it's through the Psalms that we see how people personally interact with and express themselves to a God who is holy, who is all-knowing, who is sovereign, who has, is wrathful against sin, and who is also at the same time full of grace and mercy. So our aim is to know the God that we are known by so that his words and his character are formed uh, in us. And so that's really the aim of this series. It's actually the aim every week, right? So what I'm just describing is what our aim would be every week. Um, does anybody remember life before Google? Anybody? I mean, oh, someone over here. All right, you remember life before? I would love to have a convo with you after the service. But uh, the, the question really about remembering life before Google is it kind of brings us to, you know, some of these ridiculous things happen that, 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 that you feel like when you forget that there is Google out there, right? You'll be, a, you'll be in the middle of a conversation trying to remember some fact about something until it dawns on you that you were just a Google click away from like instant knowledge and you're like, oh my gosh, how, it's ridiculous we've been actually having a conversation about something, wondering about something when all we had to do was click and have instant knowledge. And so we are part of a generation now that is, can immediately receive facts and knowledge about things at the touch of a button. But Google at the same time is ridiculous and is amazing and as far-reaching as it is, it comes with limitations. Google can't really know you. I mean, although, of course, my wife argued that it really can and that we should be scared about that right now. I don't know. That was just part of the conversation we had about that. But let's just assume, let's just understand that Google cannot know us to an intimate Uh, level uh, and degree of knowledge about ourselves. So in Psalm 139, David, the the psalm writer here, he reflects on the unlimited and the intimate knowledge God has of all things, but specifically for, in our case this morning, of, of, of himself. And the official word we use to describe God's knowledge in the Bible is this word called omniscience, which means there is nothing that is unknown to God. Now, one of the things we're going to unpack about God's knowledge this morning is that it's not merely informational, right? Because God is not like Google. God's knowledge for us actually is personal. It's not merely informational. He knows our minds. He knows our whereabouts. He knows our origin. The other thing we're going to look at in the text is David's surprising reaction to being this intimately known by in omniscient God. And the important question we want to try to answer today, and again, this is for those of you who consider yourself a follower of Christ and for those of you who, who, who don't. Um, it's simply this. 
if God really has this perplexing amount of knowledge, but has chosen to apply it to us in a personal way, what does that tell us then about God's opinion of us? And then finally, how should it change our motivation towards him? So if you look down at Psalm 131, you see the very first verse there where it says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. That's how David starts this psalm. He begins this prayer in verse 1 with a statement about God's personal interaction and involvement in his life. He says, you have searched me and you know me. And then we get to verses 2 through 16, and he makes three reflections that we're going to sort of uh, uh, wade our way through on just how deep God's knowledge goes, which is he knows what David is thinking, he knows where David is going, and finally, he knows where David has come from. So let's pick up with verse 2, and we're going to step through these three reflections that David has, and then we're going to finish by, by understanding David's reaction to this knowledge that God has of him. Picking up in verse 2. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Let's just stop right there. David says, right now, God sees my every mundane movement. He knows every thought I'm thinking. He watches every path that I'm walking down. He observes every hour I'm sleeping. He knows every word I'm going to speak before it's spoken. God knows where David's going to go. He sets David's boundaries. He places his hand on David to personally guide him. And then when we get to verse 6, it's like David's head is about to explode. He said, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I can't attain it. David says this level of knowledge is too much for a human being, for human comprehension to actually latch onto. It's too beyond his grasp. It's totally unable to be fathomed. And yet, what we read here is at the same time, we're talking about a God with this level of knowledge, and he's getting personal with David. Because what we're going to see, this is what God is like. This is what God is like with the people that know him and, more importantly, are known by him. Now, if we're being honest, okay, a measure of fear and sobriety and unsettledness should begin to kind of well up inside of us as we get even like this, just this cursory insight into God's omniscience. I mean, how many of you experience like a near panic attack when someone shows up at your door unannounced because they might see laundry on the floor or dishes in the sink, right? Why, why is that? Well, because you're afraid of being found out, right? You're afraid of people seeing something in you that you don't want surface, that you are a lousy housekeeper, you know? Let's just be straight about that, right? Here's what David is trying to say. God has found me out. He has found me out. But it's not just David. We see this all the way through Scripture. In Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 5, it says, 
For I know the things that come into your mind. God knows. In Psalm 94.11 it says, The Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. He knows our thoughts and he defines our thoughts. In Hebrews 4, chapter 4.13 it says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So there's an uncomfortableness here to the idea that God searches us and knows us to the level that he does. This is what David is trying to tell us about the intimate knowledge God has of his people here in verses 2 through 6. He's saying this. He's saying our thoughts are not like needles in a haystack to God. He's saying it's not like God can't find the missing sock when he searches your mind, right? You are not a mystery to God. Your thoughts don't escape him. Your decisions don't perplex him. Your actions don't surprise him. He never takes a gander into the inner chambers of your mind and says, wow, it doesn't happen. Our minds are not uncharted territory to God. So that leaves us with the question then, does that terrify you or does it bring you a measure of comfort? Because if that terrifies you, it gets worse. It gets worse here as we get into Psalm 139 because David says not only does God know what I'm thinking, but he knows where I'm going. Because why? Well, because he's omnipresent, meaning there is no place where God is because his present, his spirit is present in every place. So God is everywhere, not physically, but that his spirit is present in every place. That's his omnipresence. Let's pick up with verse 7. It says, David is saying, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. So the dilemma here for us as we read this next reflection from David is that not only can we not hide our thoughts from God, we can't hide ourselves from him either, right? David asked in verse 7, where can I go? He said, where can I flee? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I descend to Sheol, or another word for Sheol is the grave, the presence of God's Spirit is still there. If I'm able to escape to the most uncharted, remote, and desolate place that I can physically get to in my mind or with my being, God is there. Jeremiah chapter 23, 23 through 24 says this. This is God speaking. He says, am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? In other words, God is saying something about himself here. He's saying, I'm the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-everywhere God. That means if I'm close to you, it means I'm far from you, it means I'm everywhere. He says, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. Proverbs 15.3 tells us, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. 
So again, we're just we're widening, we're widening our mind into trying to fathom, trying to understand just who God is, just how big God is, and how all-encompassing his knowledge is over every aspect of every piece of our life. You guys remember Jonah, right? You remember the book of Jonah. Now, Jonah was a prophet, an Old Testament prophet, given an assignment by God that he didn't like, right? Have you ever been told to do something and you said, I'm not doing it? Well, this was Jonah, except it was God telling him to do what he wanted him to do. So God gave him an assignment he didn't want to do, so he boarded essentially this ancient ocean liner going in the opposite direction, somehow believing that like he had a GPS that God didn't have, right? And it kind of reminds me of this thing that happened to me one time. And I was a kid, and I had this friend, and uh, we were young, uh, and, we, uh, and my friend had the, the brilliant idea while her mom was in the shower upstairs for us to just unload the, the, the fine china cabinet and just start breaking everything on the, on the front driveway. And uh, being young, I, I thought it was a fantastic idea. Um, and after we had broken the last dish and we heard mom coming down the stairs in her towel screaming and yelling, I mean, I made a beeline to my house like any normal boy would do, right? And um, what did I do? Well, I found my dad's desk in his office, and I hid under his desk, the place he spends his entire day, okay? I was not a bright kid. Um, unlike me and Jonah, David actually takes comfort in a God he can't escape from because he knows that God is not stalking him in order to see him fall, right? What does it say in verse 10? Even there, your hand, what? Shall lead me, it says, even your right hand shall hold me. God leads and God holds David. So that closeness that David has to God, knowing that he can't escape God's presence, is not something that drives him away in terror, but it actually gives him comfort. And this is a reminder to us, all right? This is a stunning reminder, actually, that being known by God means we are a never alone from God, Right? Twice David says, what does he say? He says, you are there. You're there. Man, I know that some of us, some of you feel, man, you feel alone and you feel abandoned today. People you thought you could depend on maybe have moved on. People that were close to you turned out to not be so close. Relationships you relied on have evaporated. There's a sense where you feel like the people that were closest to you have now distanced themselves from you. Life has brought you to a place where you feel isolated. So what do we do? What do you do in that situation? Well, we do what David does. We pray like David does. We pray in the descending darkness. Because sometimes we are in places where the darkness is descending. That's a fact. That's reality. But we pray like David in the descending darkness and we receive the hands of God's people to hold on to so that they will hold you up in those moments. David spoke these words because they were true, not because they felt like they were true. Because I don't know what David was going through when he wrote that piece right there on the darkness part, right? I don't know. But it's through prayer to God and the presence of God's people that God will cover you with the light of his presence. That's how the darkness in your life becomes lighter. Why do we talk about joining community groups? 
It's not some pitch right now. This is because we want you to be able to have somebody to hold on to when the darkness will not lift. That's how God created it. That's how God shows his presence in your life. That's how he, light, how he lightens the darkness in your life. He does it through the comfort and the connection and the presence of his people. Psalm 18.28 says, For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. What happens when the light goes on in a dark place? You're in a dark room and you flip the switch. What happens? Well, you, you, you see what's there. You're able to find your way. You're able to see who's with you in that moment. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, he says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So being 2,000 years now after Christ, this is what is available to us in a way that David could only have just a very uh, shadowed understanding of, right? So this omnipresent knowledge of God, this is what Paul is saying, shines through the darkness of our hearts to provide us with the knowledge of God's glory, which we find where? Which we find in the face of Jesus. This is how darkness is transformed in us. It's how it's transformed into the brightness of day. So the question that we have to ask then is this, is God the one who lights our lamp and who lightens our darkness? Or are we using artificial lights to do that? Is it the light of God in your life through prayer, through the reading of his word, through the gathering with his people, through the encouragement that you receive from others who are receiving that light? Is that how you get your light? Or is it an artificial light that eventually runs down, that eventually burns out, and then you find yourself immersed in the darkness? Again, which one is it? But we find ourselves in that place. But David shows us that there is a different way as he reflects on God knowing his whereabouts. We also see that God knows David's origins because he formed David. Let's pick up with verse 13. It says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Well, that's stunning to even read that, to even start to grasp and understand what David is trying to connect our minds and hearts to in the sense of where God was when we were being made. Well, God was right there because he was the maker, right? Again, this is not a biology lesson as much as a, just this beautifully poetic commentary on God's unparalleled creation, design, and artistry in the formation of just one human being. David's just talking about himself. Look at the language. Formed, knitted together, fearfully and wonderfully made, created in secret, intricately woven in the depths. Before David was even conceived, God's eyes were upon him and his days were written 
down. I mean, this is somebody who's not missing anything, right? God doesn't look at you and go, you know, I just discovered something about you today. There's no discovery on the part of God given his knowledge and how deep it goes into the innermost depths of your being. Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 32, 6, he says, Is God not your father who created you, who made you and established you? And in the book of Job, chapter 10, 11, it says, You clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. I don't know if I pronounced that right. I gave it a shot. Now, here's what's interesting about this. Depending on how we understand God, depending on what kind of vision and view of God that we bring to the table in our everyday lives, we could think of God as just creating us as some product, right? We could just be a product of some distant, all-knowing guru God, but this is not what God is like, according to David in Psalm 139. We are not a collection of God's inventions. It's not cold, right? He didn't create the earth as a place to warehouse and catalog us while we gather dust in forgotten obscurity, right? It says we are his works of wonder. We have frames, or bones is what he means by frames. We have frames that are never hidden from him, but are known by him. Psalm 103 14 says, for he knows our frame. He knows our very bones. He knows our skeletons. He remembers that we are dust. Oh boy. He knows everything about us externally. He knows everything about us internally. God is a creator who knows his creation intimately. He remembers what he did in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 when it says he formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. We are people that are known by their creator. And so what we get here then as we carry on through the text is we get two surprises really with David's reaction to this knowledge of God of him. And so I'm going to start with a question which is this, are we as awestruck and dumbfounded as David is as he reflects on just this perplexing amount of knowledge that God has of him, yet at the same time, this personal knowledge that God has of him? What's surprising is that, number one, this doesn't cause David to despair. This doesn't cause David to despair. David's reflection tells us something, actually, about David's relationship to God and his view of God and what he thought God was and is and, and how, God, uh, how, how God informed the very being of his existence. Because to be searched and to be known by God to this degree, it could be terrible. And in fact, in some ways, it sounds terrible. But for David, it's wonderful. For David, God's intimate knowledge of him is a precious truth and a comforting reality. Look at what it says in verse 17. He says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. Did you know God has that many thoughts about you? And then it says, I awake and I am still with you. I awake and I am still with you. God's thoughts toward us are exhaustive, yet even given everything he knows about you and will find about you and me, 
we are still with Him every day when the sun rises. His mercies are new to us. What? Every morning. David is awestruck. He's flabbergasted by God's closeness. He's dumbfounded by it. That's the first surprise. The second surprise is because of what David knows about the God who knows him. It immediately stirs this raging passion inside of him to distance himself from the things that God hates. Let's pick up in verse 19. It says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Now, this is not the place that you thought this psalm was getting ready to go if you didn't read ahead, right? It almost feels like David, oh no, has anger management issues now. Like, David, what happened, man? Like, what brought this all on? And it kind of feels that way. It feels like this comes out of the blue until you understand what knowing God and being known by God should stir inside of us. Uh, A couple days ago, we were watching our neighbors. They're playing with, they have this little two-year-old daughter. They're playing with their daughter on the front lawn. They were laughing. They were enjoying themselves. The kids running all over the place um, until their little girl casually wanders out into the street. Now, the mood of the lawn party at that point went from happy to horror, like, like real fast. They immediately just dove on her and removed her from danger. This was why their love for her means a hatred of anything that might harm her. It includes that, right? Their love for her means that they hate anything that might come barreling down the street and end her life. Now, our response, like David's, to the knowledge of God's glory shining through the darkness of our hearts, okay, it should create in us a total hatred of anything that stands against God and tries to diminish his glory. Depart from me, David says. And he uses like really shockingly strong language that we don't really have a lot of time to unpack. But here's the deal. If you are serving an all-holy, all-just, all-knowing God, then you know that all of God's loves and all of God's hates should be the very things you conform your heart and life to because they are the path that lead to everlasting life with God. So David pleads with God to deal justly with the wicked because he loathes the things God loathes, which is indicative, it's an indicator that David also loves the things that God loves. So one of the ways that we know that a person loves God is not that just that they love the things that God loves, but that they also hate the things that God hates. They hate injustice. They hate seeing the wicked prosper. They hate those things that God hates. So the question we ask ourselves then after that is, does that, does that describe me? Does that describe you? Or do we have sort of a soft touch now on things of that nature? So because David loves what God loves and hates what God hates, he ends his prayer here pleading with God to reveal anything in him that might be grievous to him. And here's why. David doesn't assume that his heart is naturally distanced from the wicked. He doesn't assume that. He says here in verse 23, he says, Search me, O God, 
and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And this is what's surprising about David's reaction. Knowing what God knows, David still chooses to be searched and known by God so that his loves and hates are being constantly realigned with God's loves and with God's hates. Here's the dilemma for us, okay? Here's the dilemma. If God is all-knowing, the way we're reading about here, it means that the things he reveals to us about both himself and us are true, even if we don't understand them all the time. And if that's true, then it's not going to be enough to simply know things about God. We're going to need our hearts transformed by God in such a way that our lives are conformed to his knowledge of what is both true and false, good and evil, and so on. So here's the thing. You can know things about God. Some of you got, like, knowledge about God, right? I mean, if you spent time in church, if you spent time in Sunday school, if you had, like, that youth group upbringing like I did, if you went to Bible studies like I did, if you attended community groups like I did, if you watch sermons online, if you read your Bible, if you memorize Scripture, you can do all of that. You can know things about God. You can know a lot about God. Judas Iscariot, oh, you're going Judas, Ronnie. Judas Iscariot knew far more about God than we will ever know about God during our time here on earth. Judas was not what? Known by God. In the end, he did not love what God loved. He did not hate what God hated. So what's interesting to us here is that the focus of David's prayer is not really about what David knows about God. It's that God knows David. Do you guys get what I'm saying? He's known by God. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 8.3, he says, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And then we see this parallel verse in Galatians, again, written by Paul, chapter 4, 9. He says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, makes that distinction right there, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? He's saying, don't go back to those things that have been transformed in your life because you are now known by God instead of just knowing things about God. So you know you are known by God because why? Well, because you love God. Because you love the things he loves. Because you hate the things he hates, which are the elementary principles of the world. But here's what we wrestle with. We wrestle with two things in that. We wrestle with both fear and safety when we talk about being known by an all-knowing God. Because here's the thing. All of us want to be known there's a longing for all of you to be known in the depths of your heart like David. But we're afraid. We're afraid of the God we think we know. But to be known means to be invited in, right? It means to be invited in. Like, so here's what I mean by that. I know things about many people, but because I'm not known by them, I'm not going to get invited into their house probably anytime soon. To be known by God means being invited into him. And when you're invited into him, into his house, into his heart, you get to eat his words. You get to hear his heart and what his desires are for you. 
You get to be heard by Him. This is what God is like for those He knows. But we wrestle with fear. We also wrestle with safety. We want to be known, but we want to be known by someone who's safe. The problem is that God is not safe. He's not safe, but God is good. He's not safe. He's not a tame lion, as C.S. Lewis says in the Chronicles of Narnia, but he's good. Because if we ask God to search us, he will reveal our sin and lead us, it says, in what? The way everlasting. The way that endures for all time. The way that leads to the joy of a relationship restored by him through Jesus Christ. You guys tracking with me? So if God has this perplexing amount of knowledge, but applies it to us in the most personal way, what do we do that David has done in this passage? I have two things, and we'll close. Number one, we need to second-guess our opinions of ourselves. Second-guess your opinion of yourself. Why does David ask God to search him? Why does David ask God to do that? Because he assumes he doesn't know himself well enough to do it himself. Right? The assumption here with David is to search me and know me because even the thoughts that I think about myself are not going to be true because I have a heart that is deceptive. I have a heart that wants to tell me things about me that's going to lead me to the most comfortable and the most self-assuring place that I can get to. David knows that about himself. So David steps out on a limb and he says, search me and know me. Try me. Bring out these things in me that might grieve you, God, because I know that that is the path to joy and to righteousness. Second guess your opinion of yourself too. Trust that God's opinion of you is good. Okay, that's really important in knowing who God is and his approval of you if your hearts have been secured by the death of Christ. God knows what you're really like. Like, make no mistake. If this passage tells us anything, it tells us that God knows what we're really like. And what's sobering is that, wait for it, he doesn't accept that. He does not accept who you're really like. He accepts you based on what his son Jesus is really like, which is perfectly righteous and therefore perfectly acceptable to God. Jesus had to die as our acceptable sacrifice so that we might bask in a new and glory-filled glow and intimacy with God. You know where that leads us? It leads us to this. If God's opinion of us is good, we don't have to look for praise and acceptance from those who are enemies of God. Their good opinions are not what give us our sense of goodness anymore, which, by the way, was not goodness at all. The problem is we're afraid of what God will find. David says, God already knows. But the fact that he searches us while knowing everything about us gives testimony to his love and his mercy and his grace. We don't do that, by the way. We don't naturally do that in and of ourselves. When you find moldy bread in the fridge, you don't whip up a plate full of PB&Js, right? You toss it out. It's unacceptable to you. God is not you. 
God found a way to redeem your moldy breadness through Christ. He knows the hand that he's been dealt with you because he's the dealer. Now, if God was the kind of God who merely had knowledge of us to use against us, man, you'd never want to get close to him, would you? It'd be terrifying. You'd never want to be searched by him or known by him. But because God uses his knowledge of you to lead you, and not just lead you, but lead you in the way everlasting, and to draw near to you, because he drew near to you by sending Christ, who was God in the flesh, to the cross, God then becomes a God we want near to us. He's a God that we want to reveal anything to us that would stand against the joy of being known by him. And he will. If we pray what David prays, because this is what God is like. He searches us. He knows us. He holds us. He sees what's grievous in us. He leads us in the everlasting way of Jesus. And when we awake, we are still with him. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you for still being with us. Thank you for seeing the darkness of our hearts and providing a way for us to be brought back into the light of peace and relationship with you. Thanks for leading us into the way everlasting, which is Christ. God, we are afraid to be this known by you, and yet we are this known by you. And so, God, we come before you in humility and ask that you would search us, ask that you would know us. Lord, conform our hearts to the things that you love. Conform our hearts to the things that you hate. God, we trust that you will lead us and that you will hold us even when we can't see you, remembering that the darkness isn't darkness to you, it's light. Lord, let us walk in that light with one another as our church family. Lord, let us be a church that comes before you, that seeks to have increased knowledge of your mercy and grace so that we can become known by you in such a way, Lord, that our lives would be just examples of flourishing in a community that is searching for all kinds of loves to come to them by artificial light. God, we need you because we don't know ourselves very well. And we are naturally led to desiring and to chasing after things, Lord, that really are things that grieve you. So God, sober us today, but let us be reminded of your grace. Let us be reminded of your mercy. Let us be reminded that David was a very, very imperfect man who came before you acknowledging your knowledge of him, and yet, because he knew you as gracious and loving, he was able to approach you pleading for mercy. And so that's how we come before you, because we know that is the path to joy. And we are on our knees, and we are saying, God, help us. We're sinners, but there is joy to be found in you, and when we awake we know you will always be with us because your mercies are new every morning. 
So God, let us walk away from here encouraged and also seeking that light in the presence of others, Lord, that you've placed around us to display your magnificent mercy. So God, we, we leave here with sobering joy, believing you, trusting you, asking you to search us, asking you to know us once again, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.